Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Um, it's great to be with you this morning. I joked with Joel that I uh, thought about texting him last night at 11.45 and telling him I was sick again. Um, but uh, then I like to think I was spiritual enough to go to bed and that that was the reason, but it was that I was just tired and I was ready to go to bed. And I couldn't bring myself to do that, but uh, I'm glad that uh, I'm with you this morning. Uh, unfortunately, you have to have me this week after the last two weeks with uh, the wonderful talks from Nathan and Paul. Unfortunately, now you're faced with the historian and uh, the person who reads and talks to kids about reading. And uh, I like to think of myself as the kid from Sixth Sense, right? Where he's totally misunderstood throughout the whole movie because he looks at them and he says, I see dead people. I read dead people, that's what I do. Gets that, but I hope that by the end of today, you would see some benefit in that. Um, I do it because the great reformer Martin Luther used to say that he read, he read, he did at the time, he reads old people who have gone before in the faith because they teach him what it means to love God. They teach him what it means to pick up God's word which thanks to Martin Luther, we can see now in our own language, right? And they, they help him to understand just what God in his very voice is speaking to him that day. That's what I hope that we get this morning as I share with you some of the things that God has shared with me this week. So we're in Psalm 22 this morning. And if you would, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? I don't think I'm gonna read through the whole chapter, so we'll see how far we get. Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the psalmist writes, to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and it is melted within my breast. 
My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have made us so that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So give us a hunger for your word, and in that food, satisfy our daily need today. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Come on, Caroline. Come on, you can, you can do it. You've got this. I was watching a video that my wife showed me of my daughter's last day of swimming lessons just this past week. And she's on top of the big slide at the YMCA, right? The big tunnel slide that you can go down into the pool. Of course, this was her first swimming lessons, so she is terrified. She's standing at the top, right? And you can just see the thoughts churning through her mind. This is a big slide. It's really high up here. I don't know if the person at the bottom is actually going to catch me. Finally, another teacher comes up and says, come on, Caroline, I'll, I'll go with you. She takes her and puts her in her lap and they go down the slide. And of course, the 30 seconds that it takes to get to the bottom, of, you know, it goes by and we're wondering, what is she gonna do? She comes out of the slide and her eyes are so big. She's like, what have I done? And then she hits the water and you can automatically see her face and it changes and she smiles and she says, this is awesome, right? This is great. It was a split second and a joyous occasion that started as for her, the pits of misery, right? It's great to see that expression change when you know that your child has experienced something that they love and will love, even though they're terrified at first. But our emotions don't always ascend like that, do they? Oftentimes, it's the reverse, and they descend faster than they ascend. In two decades of various types of ministry, I've seen emotions descend just as much as I've seen them ascend. It was a little over a year ago, a young mother that I know just delivered her second child, a little boy. But after the delivery, the doctors noticed some strange things in her vitals, and they said, we're going to have to do some further testing. And a little less than 24 hours, they came back, and it was determined that she had cancer. And for the last year and a half, she's been battling cancer rather than simply raising a newborn. Another mother, having raised three children, the final son headed off to college went to the university, and three months later came home for Christmas. Only this time, he doesn't celebrate with the family because he no longer believes that Christ, that God could be love. 
as the Bible says he is, for he sees too much suffering in the world and just doesn't make sense to him anymore. For that mom, her joy had turned to suffering. Some people struggle with mental illness on a regular basis. Some in this very room probably have dealt with job loss or financial difficulties just this past week, are facing a terminal illness, or perhaps have had multiple miscarriages, maybe the latest in a string. How do God's people cope in times of sadness, in times of outrage, or in times of distress? I guarantee that there are some this morning who are in this very room. That's where you feel right now. That's where you are right now. Distressed, suffering. You're like me. You put on a good face, right? People say, how you doing? You say, I'm all right. When in reality, there's a storm going on. You feel a lot like the psalmist. My God, why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? So what do God's people do? in the face of the times where God seems to be nowhere to be found. For thousands of years, God's people, Jews and Christians, have had this answer. When we've experienced suffering, when God doesn't seem to be around, we sing and we pray. That's what the Psalms are, right? The Psalms are the songbook of Israel. Indeed, a great number of the Psalms were written to be used in Israel's worship, right? There's five books of the Psalms, just like there were five books of Moses in the Torah. Genesis to Deuteronomy, five books of the Psalms. And much like any book, the first couple of chapters give us an idea of what's going on in the Psalms. In chapter one, we see that the Psalms are about the blessed life, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the wicked or sits in the seats of scoffers, but day and night he meditates on God's word and he will be like a tree planted by streams of water. And then in the second Psalm, we see not only the blessed person, but the blessed king of Israel, right? We're given a picture of the blessed king whose inheritance is all the nations of the earth. And the blessed people of Israel find refuge in that king. The Psalms as a whole are expression in verse, kind of like an anthem that Israel is expecting a Messiah who would rule beside Yahweh, beside God, and he will rule the whole earth. In fact, that points back to the very promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12. In you, Abraham, I will bless, but not just you, not just your family, but all the families of the earth. God has made a covenant with his people and the Psalms are what his people sing and pray regardless of where they find themselves. They praise, they worship, but they also sing in times of confusion and lament and pain with a confession of dependence on God. Sometimes I think we don't know exactly what to do in those times of difficulty, of confusion, of pain, of suffering, because we've lost the Psalms. I don't mean we don't know where they are. We can open our Bible and find them, but we've lost reading them and praying them and singing them. 
especially psalms like Psalm 22, a psalm of lament. A psalm of lament is one that responds to a crisis that's disrupted life, a critical event that actually calls into question the conviction that we hold that God reliably can be said to deal with injustice, chaos, and death around us. Sometimes it just doesn't feel that way, does it? We've lost that ability to lament because we've lost singing and praying even these psalms like Psalm 22. So I thought, why not pick up everybody this morning, right? Let's, uh, let's get into this. We'll go through Psalm 22. Um, because it's important that we understand that we as Christians are in the very best place to understand this psalm and to use it faithfully. I think there are three perspectives of lament that we can get from this psalm, but even more than that, I think it will be comforting to you because it has been to me even this week to know that this psalm speaks to you in various voices, right? It depends quite a lot who speaks this psalm to you. Is this just Israel speaking this psalm? Can I legitimately speak this psalm and sing it and say it? What does the Bible tell us about that? I think the Bible gives us three people who have lamented by using this psalm, right? And the first is that this psalm was a lament of Israel. Why have you forsaken me? We, we don't know the setting of most of the psalms unless we're given a superscription, right? We see that in about half the psalms. There's a superscription that we're given that tells us some historical data. Unfortunately, this is not one of them, right? We're given a superscription, but it kind of gives us the melody, whatever Doe of the Dawn was supposed to be, you know, a song uh, by which it was to be sung. And so various people have said perhaps the setting was Moses in the wilderness. Perhaps it was Esther as she faced the irrational tyrant Haman uh, and was standing up for her people. Perhaps it was Hezekiah as uh, the envoys of Babylon came on and God said, you can do this, Hezekiah, you deal with this. But most of history, at least as we've read the text, have said that it's probably to do with David as David is fleeing Saul. Remember that from the book of 1 Samuel? David has been anointed the true king of Israel, but he's not actually reigning. And Saul is persecuting him. And he takes him through valleys and over hills and into caves. As Saul chases David through those valleys and in those caves, we can actually hear these poetic descriptions, right? The bulls have encompassed me, right? The armies have come round and they are surrounding me. Ravenous lions, they're not here to wish me well, they're here to kill me, right? Ravenous lions, the dogs, they don't want my good, they want the good of Saul. But the Israelites, even after David reigned, we have hindsight, we know he reigned, but even after that, the Israelites continued to pray and sing this psalm. When the kingdom was thrust into exile in Babylon, the Jews prayed this psalm to remember God's covenant promise to them, even when it looked as if he had abandoned them. You are in Babylon. Exile is a stark contradiction to the straightforward claim of the whole book of Psalms that there will be a Messiah who reigns over you and you will rule over the whole earth, right? You can't even be in your own land you're under the hand of another king, a tyrant at that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken us? 
be not far from me because trouble is near. And right now, it does not look like there is anyone who can help me. And even when the world is so disoriented, so upside down as it was for the Israelites, they maintained three perspectives in their laments every time they sang this song. The first one is that faith says, my God, even those circumstances stay, do you really hear me? You see, they said, my God, my God, how easy it would be to not say that. You go into exile, you're not in your place. God's promises seem very thin right now. You don't wanna say, my God. You want to say, what in the world are you doing? That's what your circumstances say. But they still prayed and they still said, my God. They still remembered the covenant God had made with them. Why could they still speak of God personally as my God? Because the second perspective of lament is to remember the past. That's what he said in verses three to five, right? You are holy and you our fathers trusted you delivered them, to you they cried, you rescued them, they trusted and were not put to shame. They remembered. They remembered that they'd been in exile before, in Egypt, under the hand of a tyrant, right? And God sent deliverance. When they were slaves in Egypt, God heard their prayers and delivered them. That's a pretty good message to hear when you are in exile. And after a recognition of your circumstances and a remembrance that God had been with you before, the third perspective of lament is to say, you are God. You're God, I'm not. You are God. In verse 11, whether surrounded by the armies of Saul on David's mouth or whether in exile and surrounded by Babylon, they say, be not far from me for trouble is near. There's none to help me. Even towards the end in verse 19, oh God, do not be far off. Deliver me, save me, rescue me. I know you did it in the past. I don't know where you are right now, but please do that for me. Hindsight's 2020. And from our 21st century perspective, we know that God did deliver Israel from Babylon and sent them to Persia, right? And then from Persia, back to Palestine. They were back in their own land. And yet even then, we hear that they don't feel like they've been totally delivered. In Nehemiah chapter nine, written after the return from exile, what do they say? Behold, we are slaves to this day. In the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings you've set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Even when God has kept the promise that they would be in their land, they still suffered. They still had chaos and distress and were slaves. But what happens if we understand this psalm as being spoken by another, more faithful Israelite, a more faithful Messiah? The second person that speaks this psalm, it's the lament of Jesus, the Christ. Matthew 27 and Mark 15 tells us, on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, uh, I think, I'm looking at my time here, yeah. 
I think I'm going to spend the most of my time on this section. This is the second section. I want to spend most of my time um, because of a confession that I have. I'm not always convinced that I do a good job of choosing text that I can handle in like one setting, right? One little 30-minute clip. I'm a, I'm a teacher. I teach over 16 weeks. I can figure these things out. People ask questions. We can think about it. We can talk through it can't do that this morning, right? I don't get the luxury of a sermon series that can last, you know, three weeks or three months or three years or whatever it would be, right? Um, But what is more, this is a psalm that is meant to be prayed, and I confess that I doubt I've prayed it enough this past week, right? I, I doubt I've prayed it enough to totally understand it. Still, as I, have been, as I have prayed through it, I think it's this, Jesus' use of this prayer that's a significant part of what someone needs to hear this morning. Because I want you to understand that God has inspired hard texts, right? This is not altogether an easy book to understand. There are some texts that don't make sense on the surface. There are some texts that force you to pray and pray and pray. There are some texts that force you to think and to meditate and to think some more. And there are texts that force you to listen, to listen to scripture, to listen to others, to listen to your small group, to listen to people who've been where you've not been. There are texts that are hard to understand. And it's quite natural for us to think, reading through Psalm 22, I got this, right? I know this is about Jesus, right? They pierced my hands and feet, totally Jesus, right? All who see me mock, he trusts in God, let him deliver him. We hear that. The crowds are yelling, crucify him, crucify him. That's a ravenous lion's voice, isn't it, right? They cast lots for my clothes, All of those make it very easy to say, this is Jesus for us. And clearly this song, this psalm speaks of Jesus, the Messiah. But as easy as those references are to see, we can't get past the fact that Psalm 22, one says something very difficult. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me illustrate with a story about Martin Luther. I referenced him earlier. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk, and so he often sat down in his study to read and to think. But one day, he sat down in his study to consider this text. Hour after hour, he sat still. He was so absorbed in meditation that those who would go in and out of his room thought, maybe he's dead. He was a corpse. He didn't move his hands or his feet. He didn't eat or drink for hours, but sat with his eyes open, almost as if he were in a trance, thinking over and over and sometimes saying out loud, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then after many long hours, when he was lost to everything else that was going around, he rose up from the chair and someone heard him through the door say, God forsaking God? No man can understand that. And that gets at the heart. What in the world does it mean that God has forsaken Jesus? 
First, let me say that I don't think we understand this as a difficult text very often because we're accustomed to say something like I'm about to. And I confess that I have said this in the past, but I don't think it's right. Sometimes we will say for the first time in all eternity, the son has been separated from the father. But in our attempt to think in some Trinitarian fashion, we've actually spoken as if we confessed three gods and not one. We've spoken as if there can be a deep division somehow in God himself. And those who hear us talk that way have taken it to its logical end and said that the crucifixion, the passion, the death and resurrection of Jesus is nothing but, quote, cosmic child abuse. But this cannot be. For Christians have consistently for thousands of years confessed God cannot suffer. This is what, we're going to learn a big term here. This is what theologians like myself have called divine impassibility. I-M-P-A-S-S-I-B-I-L-I-T-Y. Divine impassibility. And it simply means this. God has no passions, no disordered desires that can be controlled by an external force. There is no disordered desire in God that would cause his love to ebb and flow. Unlike my life and unlike your life, God's desires, God's affections are never out of control. They're never distorted. He's never operated by some external force because he is God. Thus, when we say that God in his very nature is love, the fact that he cannot be controlled by disordered passions means that every act God does is ultimately motivated by love. Every act of God is ultimately motivated by truth. Every act of God is ultimately motivated by goodness because God is simply in himself love, truth, and goodness, Father, Son, and Spirit. Many modern Christians have departed from that classical understanding of God because somehow, some way, we want a kinder, gentler God. We want a God who is more real, right? We want a God uh, who is kind and, and suffers with us because then he'll understand what it's like to be human. He'll get what it's like for me to struggle with all of these difficulties. But such a God like that is not merciful. A God like that is useless because he suffers in the same way we suffer. We can cry out to the depths of our suffering and he can't do anything about it because he's exactly like we are. Jesus does not say, God, why have you forsaken me in this way? Jesus praised the psalm on the cross not to indicate a separation of son and father, but even more gloriously to say, I am taking on your God-forsakenness. I told you that I would give you old dead people, right? Here's one. One of my favorite theologians, St. Augustine, said this. What did the Lord mean by this? God had not abandoned him since he himself was God. For what other reason was this said than that we were there? For what other reason than that Christ's body 
is the church. You see, Augustine understands Jesus's cry the same way that Paul would have understood his cry because Paul in Romans 6 said this, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Paul often tells us that we are the body of Christ and that Christ is our head. But too often, we've made this simply a metaphor, right? It is that, but it's more. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, this mystery is great. And I'm talking about Christ and the church, right? It's a mystery, not simply a metaphor. Martin Luther once said that the greatest way to understand scripture is three things. You pray about it, you meditate on it, and then you suffer. That'll preach, won't it? Everybody's excited about that. But I found that the theologians and friends of mine who have been most helpful to me in times of difficulty and suffering and chaos are those who have suffered. Let me share this quote for you from a friend named Todd. Todd was diagnosed with a rare form of blood cancer. I don't have a clue what that's like. He was in the hospital quite frequently for treatments, radiation, chemotherapy, so on. In the hospital, he says, I didn't need solidarity in my suffering. I didn't need to know that somebody had gone through what I'd gone through. I needed to know that God's covenant love is so steady and powerful that in Christ, suffering and death lose their dominion over my life. This God does not need suffering and death in order to be God. Instead, in the love that accords perfectly with his covenantal promises, God becomes incarnate as the pioneer, our brother, a great high priest who in his humanity is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's Hebrews 4. This is not, get this, this is not a deep division in God himself. Instead, this is steadfast, trustworthy love. Bernard of Clairvaux, another monk in the 12th century said this, God cannot suffer, but he can suffer with. When Jesus prays Psalm 22, he prays it as one who has taken on our sin, as the head of the church, our Lord, our own God forsakenness placed on him so that we understand he's praying that as me. That's me on the cross saying that, not Jesus. And so that leads us naturally into the final voice that we hear in this lament. It's my voice. It's your voice. It's the lament of the church. God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know what personal distresses or sufferings or chaos is going on in your life. It may be death. In fact, I know that people have experienced death sickness, strokes, mental illness, social ostracism, whatever it is. Faith says, my God, though the circumstances may say, do you actually hear me? But since Jesus spoke this psalm, when I say it, 
I know that God hears. And he does not abandon. He does not abandon. He's made a covenant with his people and his love, that love that's his nature, he can't suffer because everything he does is from love and it will not allow him to abandon his people. Moreover, the steadiness of God's love allows me and you in the unsteadiness of all of our circumstances to approach him and say, God, you are steady and I am not. And then we can also remember the past, right? But we're in a more enviable situation. Unlike Israel, who could remember the exile from Egypt, the deliverance from Egypt, when we remember, we remember the cross and we remember Jesus praying this very psalm after saying, I have the power to give up my life and I have the power to take it up again. The father sent the son to the cross. The son went willingly to the cross. We must hold those in tandem. Remember everything that God has done in your life, all the times that he's led you through discouragement and distress. Oh, but also remember all that he has done for you through Jesus. And last we can say, you are my God, right? And man, doesn't the perspective change when Jesus has already said that, right? You are God. You are high priest. You are brother. You are like me, but without sin. Therefore, I trust that the love you have for me Father, Son, and Spirit, because you made a covenant with me. I can believe you because you did that. And unlike we human beings whose passions cause us to toss and turn, I'm indecisive. I flip and I flop. I change my mind. I forget my promises. Man, I've got three daughters. How I always remember that I forget some promises I make because I am a creature. Unlike that, God always keeps his promises. That is his nature because he is love and truth and goodness. And unlike me, it is impossible for God to lie. As Phil and the musicians make their way up, I wanna give you three statements in conclusion. As you reflect on Psalm 22, both this morning and hopefully as you reflect it in these times where you need to find yourself lamenting, maybe the loss of someone dear or the sting of illness, the sting of death, confusion of the loss of job, we can't forget the end of Psalm 22, where in 24, the psalmist cries out after seeing some kind of resolution, you've not hidden your face. You have heard me. So what shall we do? Let me give you three challenges. Make time for lament. We learn to face suffering and affliction as God's people by reflecting on his word and quite simply, like Luther said, by going through suffering. If you're not doing it now, you will do. Remember the Psalms of lament and pray them. That's the second one. Pray the Psalms 
anywhere you are, everywhere you are. This is the songbook of the church and it reaches the depths of one's soul. Pray them in praise, pray them in confession, pray them in joy, pray them in sadness, in grief, in suffering and affliction. Always pray the Psalms. Augustine asked for the Psalms to be written on a piece of paper and placed up on the wall while he laid on his deathbed so that as he rolled in pain, he could read the Psalms and he could pray and be comforted because they taught him the very anatomy of his own soul and the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God. And lastly, remember and cherish the cross. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flowed mingled down. There is only one person that could ever experience sorrow and love in that way. The God-man, Jesus, who was God and loved perfectly, but was man and felt sorrow and suffering and chaos, just like you and me, yet without sin. Did ever such love and sorrow meet? No, they didn't. Chaos, suffering, and even death are put to death at the cross. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you were challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.